And the Prillia won two on the first day and then Ducati fastest on day two, but with an old spec bike and one of its youngest riders. So was MotoGP testing completely unrepresentative madness and nonsense? Is the form book being turned inside out or is it somewhere in the middle? We're going to find out over the next hour or so in the latest episode of the Race MotoGP podcast. Uh, I'm Matt Beer. I'm in Lorenzo Savadori mode as stand-in host now, I think, and I'm, I'm kicking around for a while, but I will eventually get dropped. Um, joining me are Simon Patterson and Val Hurunchi. Simon, you've made it across from Malaysia to Indonesia already, is that right? Yes, um, jumped on the first of two charter flights today from uh, Sepang, basically the airport is at the circuit in Kuala Lumpur, straight to Lombok, 20 minutes from the hotel. Um, interesting experience whenever they told us halfway through the flight to switch off all electronics as the navigation systems in the plane was about to fail. Um, but apart from that, it was all pretty smooth traveling and we have all seemingly made it here. And, uh, you know, let's let's just hope that all the PCR tests come back clear and we're ready to go and do another three days of testing at a brand new circuit. And Val, how are you? Yeah, pretty good. I uh, got uh, Olympic short track speed skating on my TV, which is very interesting and is currently stealing a fair bit of my attention. But I'll, I, you know, I'll be in actual professional mode once once we get fully into this. I think once gold medals are awarded. <laughs> okay, well that's you know, I. Now you've spoiled the fact that we've had to redo this intro because I got too distracted or something like that. Because yeah, the final was actually on when we did it for the first time. This is sort of behind-the-scenes magic for you all. Yeah. Should we talk about MotoGP bikes? I think that is definitely for the best now, isn't it? So, Ducati was fastest overall at the test, which is exactly what people would have expected going into it. But it wasn't the 2022 bike. It was the 2021 bike in Ennea Bastianini's hands for the now-independent Grassini team. So... What does that tell us about uh, Ducati's position? Uh, Simon, do you want to go first with that? It's, to be honest, pretty much exactly what we expected because it's kind of a Ducati tradition at this point to uh, to finish the the previous season, uh, go into a new season with a really good bike that goes really fast for one lap. You know, They have the best bike on the grid for qualifying, so it's probably no surprise that the best iteration of that bike, the one that finishes the race in Valencia, is the fastest bike when it comes to the start of a new season. And when you look back at, at you know, a few years back down the line at Sepang testing, Danilo Petrucci finished fastest at Pramac. Uh, Peko Bagnaia finished fastest at Pramac. There's a bit of a history of, of the second tier Ducati going really, really quickly here. So I think there's not too much to read into it. The factory guys had some teething difficulties um some things they were working on with the new bike that meant they weren't really concentrating in time attack the same way that uh best in any was so yeah not not too much of a surprise really for me the biggest takeaway from it is the fact that bastianini said at the end of the first day that his entire goal for pre-season testing was to concentrate on one lap pace because all through the second half of the 2021 season he had like paced to run top six, but he was starting from P18 because he was really bad at qualifying. So he spent the first 10 laps of a race trying to fight his way through the pack. And as a result, never got anywhere. So he he basically focused on qualifying. He did three time attack runs on the second morning of the test with three soft tires. One of those paid off with a new absolute circuit record and he achieved his goals. Along with uh, Binder and Nier, Enea uh, was the most prolific quali- uh, prolific racer relative to qualifying last season. I think his qualifying score versus Marini was pretty much level, if not in Marini's favour. And I think Marini obviously put it on the front row once. Bastianini got nowhere particularly close. And in all three of those cases, the the prospect of any of those three riders making a big step in qualifying is tantalising. Now... What what you've mentioned about you know this being Sepang and this being a, a year old Ducati is obviously it's an important factor also because when 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 Bagnaia in in the Sepang test as a rookie finished like a very close second to Petrucci on on what was a year old bike that didn't exactly preface a great season in fact that came before a season that was actually really really rough for Pecco before he ultimately found his feet but at the same time I mean just it's it's a kind of flash of speed that we've not seen from Inea over one lap before in 
in MotoGP and he was he was really really good in races really good at making his tires last really good at making his um physical physical fitness pay off in in those races last year i think he's going to be a, a headache for basically everyone i don't think you can fight for the title on a year old bike maybe but i i remember in the in the podcast that we did for the top 10 top 10 riders of the of last season i remember making the prediction that Enea Bastianini was going to win races plural because of how good he looked last year and honestly after after Sepang i i feel pretty good about that prediction i i'm going to disagree slightly with you Val, which will come as no surprise um it's not that i don't think that he doesn't have the pace to win it's just that in other seasons he'd have delivered that that performance at testing backed up with what we saw at the second half of last season and you definitely say this guy's going to win a race or two next season but I think that the problem is at the minute that because there's 10 or 12 other guys on the grid who have the exact same thing that applies to them it's kind of hard to for me to like definitively say Bastianini is going to be a race winner it's it's basically the exact same situation we were in 12 months ago with Jan Zarco where you would have said Zarco has everything he needs to win a race and it never quite happened because of, you know, so many fast guys around him. So I think it's it's that. Can he be in the podium? Yes, 100%. He, he Not regular, but he'll, he'll make multiple podium appearances. But you've got, you know, the odds are three times greater, right? There's there's three times the podium places to finish on. But the race win, I think, is, is just a, a harder gamble because I think there might always be someone who's just got a little bit more yeah, yeah, I it, it's easy to get carried away after testing. I'm not like I'm not like 100% convinced or if I were a betting man, I'm not sure I would be willing to bet money on it. Depends on the odds, I guess. Uh but also I think the biggest threat to a Bastianini race win would be the 2022 Ducatis getting really good really fast basically and really like an, an obvious upgrade to where on tracks where the 21 Ducati is really good, the 22 Ducati is better, and there's five of them, so yeah. Uh, but I think my, if I were to make like a categorical statement that I feel decent about, it would be something like, um, if Bastianini doesn't win a race, it's because the 22 Ducatis have dominated everyone, basically. I, I don't have as many Bastianini posters on my wall as Val does. I, I remember in the top 10 podcast last year, Val, you were a very hardcore Bastianini fan. But I, I, I put a mate. <laughs> I, I, I think, oh, oh, maybe I misremember that. You, you, it was a very positive eight. No, no, I put a mate, but I said, yeah, but I was very, yeah. very positive, yeah. You're a generous man. Eight for you is definite champion next year. But I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to out-generous you, actually. There was so... End of last season, there were so many races where you'd get five laps from the end and Bastianini would suddenly be there in fifth or sixth place and then start you know, overtaking people who he should have been nowhere near where, you know, on, on the package that he had at that point. So on a more up-to-date package, if not the top spec one, and having nailed the problem he had last year, if he has sorted his one lap pace, I, I really think he could do something, something pretty special this year. So... I think title threat is probably yeah way too ambitious. He is ultimately in a satellite team that's not even second in Ducati's pecking order. But you know, we wouldn't it be a great story if he could be the person to bring independent race wins back to kind of back to Grassini's repertoire all, all these years after the kind of Melandri and, and Elias heroics. So we do like chucking in a bit of a Larry prediction on on the podcast as we go along. So one each. What is Bastianini? Where will Bastianini be in the championship at the end of the season? Val. Sixth. Simon? Slightly lower. Sixth uh, sixth to tenth. I'll go ninth, but having won two races. It, honestly, it took all of my composure <laughs> to hear Simon say slightly lower sixth after sixth <laughs> and not just completely lose it instantly. <laughs> so I, I deserve some credit Dis- for that, I think. <laughs> disagreeing for the sake of disagreeing will actually agree. But so that's, you know, that, I would say Bastion needs on the 2021 spec Ducati. That is more sorted. It's been raced all season. It was a benchmark last year. You guys mentioned teething problems with the 2022 Ducati and you discussed the idea that that bike needs to be sorted. I mean, what is, what is currently wrong with the 2022 Ducati? And is it is it what you'd expect at this point in testing or is it something to be more concerned about for the opening rounds? Who wants to go first with that? It's exactly what you'd expect from testing. It's exactly what you'd expect. The bike is fundamentally fine. The problem is just refining electronics. 
Um, it sounds like they're having a little bit of issue with sort of the first touch of the throttle. Um, obviously, it's a fly-by-wire throttle, not a cable, so just the feel back to the riders, not perfect. It's it's something that they're absolutely confident that they can iron out, and it's actually something that they're absolutely confident, not absolutely confident, but they're, they're sort of optimistic that they could even have fixed for next weekend's test, because let's not forget, we've got four days in quarantine hotels now. That's four days of engineers with laptops, sitting with riders, looking at data, coming up with new strategies, writing new code, you know, trying to fix these issues. Um, multiple writers said yesterday that the writers who like looking at data said yesterday that uh, it was a dream, really, <laughs> having four days off with everyone in quarantine because they get this chance to to really study and, and work on it. Uh, and on, obviously, on top of that as well, there are also factories who now have you know huge engineering teams back at home and everything sort of as soon as the bike is plugged in in the garage, everything is loaded back to the factory and someone is number crunching back then and and Ducati actually hinted that the team that do that were in the office at the conclusion of testing on Sunday evening, um, which would have been Sunday morning UK time, a European time to start to start doing some work. So, so I think they're they're going to go into the next few days of testing really quite positive. And you know, I can't stress enough that despite having those teething problems, all of the riders were were super happy with the new bike with the potential of the new bike, it sounds like there's a lot, lot, lot more still to come from that machine. And it's just a case of unlocking it, which frankly should be a huge worry to everyone else. So, you know, everyone expected to be a little bit nervous about Ducati going into this weekend. But uh, day one of the test was topped by a team people haven't been getting too nervous about for most of recent history, Aprilia. And we said in the previous podcast that every winter we look for Aprilia to make a step forward and to justify its place on the grid and it had its its breakthrough season last year and then one two on the first day of the testing so is that significant or has it benefited a bit from the shakedown or what do you reckon val it's it's both it's significant and it's it's benefited from the from the shakedown situation it's significant because um clearly even if this is the upper limit of the bike it's high it's already high and that was it was very much also the case last year remember when they were towards the front in Qatar and that was not quite their real level relative to the other bike but it's to the other bikes but it's still it still signified that the upper level of the Aprilia with a lot of with with a fair amount of mileage shakedown mileage whatever is high is higher than it was in the past and we see this again here the bike apparently turns a lot better all of its other areas are at least decent to good um apart from I think uh stopping the bike maybe still a bit of a a bit of a concern but yeah if it's not i don't think it's going to be one two in the first race but i think that what the one two in the opening day of testing signified is that on average it's going to be more competitive than it was last year because last year's bike i i don't think was capable of going one two on any of the days of testing apart from the shakedown tests when other bikes weren't weren't around and also, you know, it's important to mention that, yes, the shakedown was an extra three days, but of those three days, Maverick used two, I think, and Aleish used just the one before. So it's, it's you know, it's not nothing. Other riders would have gone quicker if, if they also had that extra resource. But it's not like, it's not like they've been camping at Sepang for the whole off season. Yeah, absolutely that. And, and, and to me, it was more a case of, even if they hadn't been, first and second if they'd been fourth and fifth and still saying the things that they'd said afterwards we i I wouldn't be talking about them much differently because you know they have made that step again um it sounds like for a manufacturer who is adamant that they haven't substantially changed the bike and only made small tweaks the bike is very different um i think they've, they've kept everything the same but just moved it all around they've repackaged it the bike is alesh said the mike the bike was like a moto 2 bike it was that narrow now. Um, I spoke to Massimo Revola for a, a, an interview that's coming up later this week in the site. He says it's not quite a Moto2 bike. Like, Alicia's getting a little bit carried away there. But it, it is smaller. Um, and then as a result of that, it means through the fast corners at Sepang, which is one of the reasons why everyone likes testing at Sepang. It's got real fast corners and really slow corners. Through the fast corners, they can really force the bike around a bit. They can really use it to the extent that Maverick was almost talking in like terms of Yamaha corner speed 
And if they've somehow managed to build a V4 with Yamaha corner speed, they're going to have a really good season, especially for a rider who has spent the majority of his career on inline four MotoGP bikes that rely on corner speed. I think, I think Fabio got to follow Aleish for a bit during one of the days, and his his main comment on the Aprilia was, it turns a lot. And that's, you know, from a Yamaha rider. That's a, that's from a Yamaha, yeah. yeah. That's, a nice, that's a nice one to hear. Uh, just it looks a good bike, and it looks also the important factor is is that they won't have to rely on Aleish for all the headline results anymore. Maverick is on pace. He is basically right there already with Aleish. He was what a tenth off on the ultimate pace, and I think his his general bulk of lap times look pretty decent. So, yeah, it's I expect I expect a good season. I just you know I think there's still gonna be an adjustment come Qatar, but it's going to be, you know, it's going to be, I think, a really, really, really good fruitful campaign. Maverick is another writer whose favorite word from the test was potential. Uh, he he says he's still adapting himself to the bike. He, he's still not fully a V4 engine rider, and uh, there is still more to come just from him, from, from learning how to ride the thing. So that's promising as well. But you, you say that, you think it might be a bit different in Qatar, Val. I actually think that Qatar will be one of their best chances of the year to do very well. Because when you look back through the results, it is historically one of Aprilia's very best circuits and one of Alicia's very best circuits. And actually one of Maverick's very best circuits too. So Maverick, so yeah. in theory, if they have a chance to to do well, you know, the, the Rivale explained that there are a few tracks later in the year that they're targeting specifically you know the 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 places where you would expect the silverstones the phillip islands the Athens, but those are also circuits that produce unpredictable races so i would tend to suggest actually that qatar is maybe their best chance this year of of even winning a race the other factor as well that we shouldn't underestimate is um that using the phrase aprilia one two doesn't sound weird anymore whereas for the last few years you'd get Aprilia one and then a massive time gap from Alish to a teammate who was probably furious with the team so that that's quite an atmosphere transition for them to have two strong and, and happy riders now isn't it well we, you know we've, we've got to a point where I think we got over that basically mostly last year when Aprilia was able to hire Maverick Vinales like yeah. you, you you suggest that three years ago and it's bonkers ridiculous nonsense and now it's yeah it's a fact of life and it makes perfect sense well even the morning that i think it was the morning after assen possibly when simon first popped up in our online office saying that story was breaking even at that point after aprilia's start to the season i was i was still in hysterics about the idea and it it doesn't seem it doesn't seem mad now it actually seems like a re, like a really natural fit so now we're thinking about Aprilia as more of a serious team. What is the ultimate potential here? Not so much this year, but long term yet. Is this a team that's going to keep building and keep progressing so it genuinely is a hardcore MotoGP frontrunner taking on Ducati, Yamaha, Honda? Or you know, is Aprilia's resources ceiling a lot lower than that? I mean, two years ago, Suzuki won the MotoGP title. Why, why the hell not? Absolutely. You know, Aprilia has the rider. Maverick Vinales is desperately inconsistent and impossible his MotoGP career is hard to make much sense of but he's absolutely got the talent to be a MotoGP cha- champion in some circumstance one day so you know even if they arrive to where Suzuki is that's that's a lot and the thing to remember is that Aprilia is not just Aprilia Aprilia is a component of the Piaggio group which is a big company with big resources who have done particularly well actually out of the pandemic because scooter sales have gone through the roof so they have cash for for you know not they're not ktm or they're not honda but they're definitely outspending suzuki at the minute and maybe the the current lineup isn't the one that produces a consistent race winner or, or maybe even a world champion but you know if we go another two years and you've got a kid like Anea Bastianini or Peko Bagnaia coming up through the ranks and the Aprilia has been winning races, then, you know, they're they're now a team that are capable, like they were capable of, of attracting Maverick, they are a team that are capable of attracting the next big thing in a few years' time as well, or they could well be. 
So going into the test, one of the things we kept discussing during podcasts was the future for Joanne Mir and Fabio Cortararo, two past champions, well, one reigning champion, who are both, um, I'd say, openly touting themselves around to future employers. Did the test help Suzuki's case for keeping Mir? Simon, what do you reckon? Yes. Plain and simple. Yes, it did. They brought <laughs> him the, the bike that he wanted them to bring, by the sounds of things. Um, Suzuki are probably the manufacturer that has the rest of the grid most worried at the minute because it, it seems like, you know, fair play to them. They said that they were going to bring a bike that was 2020 level again, that 2021 had been a, a year that, you know, they'd been set back through various things, through budget, through losing a team manager, through the pandemic, meaning all their staff couldn't go to work, etc., 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 but the plan was to come strong. We know how long they've been working on the 2022 bike. We know that uh, that Sylvain Gantoli's been riding that thing for longer than some of the current MotoGP bike rode their 2021 bikes last season. It's been around that long. And it, it turns out it is really good. It's, it's really strong. And Mir... The, the change in attitude from Friday to Sunday at the test from Mir, where on Friday when I asked him, he kind of floated for the first time that there might be a prospect of moving if things didn't work, to Sunday where he just sounded happy was very, very notable. Honestly, though, hearing what we, hearing what we heard on Friday, I have to wonder whether, like, not only will one test not make a difference, but... I have to wonder whether his his mind is already set uh, you know set on doing something else because even if the 2022 Suzuki is really good and it seems really good uh both the allure of and there's no like there's no particularly reliable good link right now between Honda and Mir despite the the reports as far as we can tell like there's no obvious smoking gun there but the the, the Repsol colors and also the the Repsol budget. I just I think those two might play a bigger role than however good the twenty twenty two JSXRR is. If if Mir wants to make the best longer term play, but you know it's it's it, it's hard to tell. They're not they're not going to be saying anything anytime soon. By the looks of it, I'm I am a little bit wondering whether there's an agreement in principle somewhere already. Whether it be for Mir to join Honda or to stay at Suzuki or to do something else entirely, you know we're we're coming up pretty close to to the start of the season, and normally riders who are this good, they don't stay on the market for very long. My actual rider market takeaway from the test is that um, Mir, if he hasn't signed anything, might even have left it not too late, but I I think suddenly Fabio Quartararo is back in the market because he's the person that came away from Sepang really unhappy with the progress made in his bike. And um, I, you, you've got to think that if both options are in the table, Honda are going to look at both of them. Um, in theory, Mir would be Mir would be the rider I would pick, because I think his style would suit that bike a little bit better. But I think Yamaha, Honda are probably looking at Vinales, or sorry, at, at Quattararo, and Yamaha and Mir Suzuki and thinking which one of those combinations is easier to beat for a championship and they probably think it's Mir and Suzuki so why not take Quattararo and make sure Yamaha don't have him as well as having as Honda actually having him you know there's always that other side to the the coin um yeah I, I think having gone into the last podcast thinking the chances of Mir to Honda was quite high and I think the chances of Quattararo to Honda are probably higher so what were Cotteraro's main complaints by the end of last weekend? I mean, wanted extra power, it's not there. I think that's that's basically the gist of it, that being one. Uh, two being that the bike hasn't made enough of a step even outside that to where you can sort of see it in the fact that his famed qualifying supremacy really faded towards the end of the end of 20, uh, 2021 and we don't really see signs of it being immediately back like this is Quadraro did do a time attack in this in this test and he was two tenths off the pace two tenths off the pace is fine but Fabio Quadraro is one of the best if not the best qualifiers in uh, in MotoGP so um 
yeah, those are basically the two. If I'm if I'm Fabio, what I'm most concerned about is not where I am right now, but seeing the other the other Yamahas who were all lower than twentieth. And that's that's four bikes. That's the okay, the test rider probably shouldn't be higher than twentieth, but and Darren Binder shouldn't yet be higher than twentieth if ever. But with all due respect, but um, the fact Andrea Davicioso doesn't seem particularly thrilled, and the fact that Franco Morbidelli really doesn't seem over the moon either with what he's seen from the from the newest Yamaha package. If I'm Fabio, that that concerns me because I don't think I want to be fighting alone out front again, like I did for for half of 2021, because it, that didn't look a ton of fun. So the the thing with the Yamaha it seems to be. That the bike is fundamentally okay, apart from in certain areas like the corner, from from the middle of the corner to the sort of the point where you start to break for the next one. That's the bit where they're weakest. And that's the only bit that all of the riders really wanted fixed. The, the rest were quite content. You know, they were quite content with the rest of it. I asked, I put the same question yesterday to at the end of testing to Davizioso and to Quartararo, I asked was the problem that Yamaha had taken one step forward and everyone else had taken two. Davizioso just looked at me and lifted his eyebrows and then chuckled. And Quartararo looked at me and went, mm, one step is maybe optimistic, more like half. I mean it was a it was a really good bike last yeah. year. I mean for all the for all the gloom sudden oh this is the championship winning bike with the championship winning rider and by all accounts, his pace in Sepang was, like, his general, more even outside the one lap, his general pace was fine. But after what happened last year, I think Fabio would want more than fine. Even if the package that he has gives him, like, a 25% chance of winning the title and, of, you know, having to take on, like, a supercharged Ducati with Banyaya and Martin and a Marquez who's back in full form, and a Suzuki that's taken a big step with Mir. It's just, you know, even if your bike is still pretty good and you like riding it, that's... You're not going to love that, because last year you dominated for a good chunk of the season. The 2020 Suzuki was good enough to win a championship, and the 2021 Suzuki was still a great bike that Mir loved riding, but it wasn't enough to win a championship for him. And we're... Or a race or a race and we're talking about whether or not he's going to desert them as a result you know that that is the reality that everyone else has upped their game this year and and this time around it's been Yamaha that's been left behind almost everyone else we'll we'll get to the we'll get to that but yeah. I no I, I actually think it is everyone okay fair enough yeah we did say last week as well that um riders at Yamaha have complained about power and acceleration for as long as we can remember, and then still gone on and won championships. But what worked in the 2000s and early 2010s isn't necessarily going to work in the 2020s. The, the game is changing, isn't it? Do you think, Simon, there's a degree of complacency from Yamaha with how it's approached this winter? I, I think it's, it's less complacency and more conservatism. Yamaha know what they're good at, and they're almost too careful to protect that. They, they don't want to do anything that jeopardizes that amazing corner speed and turning. And maybe that that requires a rethink you know they we we had a full there was a a full like month of speculation of a few seasons back about are yamaha going to build a v4 because is that you know is that the only way to compete and then uh the next two championships were won by inline fours from two different manufacturers which kind of settled the argument and i'm not saying that that is what yamaha need to do to win another title but they maybe need to do something a bit more you know out of the box they certainly need to do more with Cal Crutchlow, who I think is is quite underutilized in comparison to how Silva and Gantoli is used at Suzuki. They they need, you know, a spark of something new in the engine development department. Uh, they have a new technical director for this season who was announced at the team presentation. Whether or not that makes any difference, we don't know yet. But, you know, something something needs to give them a kick up the ass, really. Yeah, I think I think complacency is i don't think that really comes in with any of the MotoGP factories because you just can't you can't in the way that MotoGP is right now you you're gonna get absolutely destroyed if if you allow any of that and i think they're all professional enough and budgeted enough to to avoid it but yeah i think conservatism is 
something that seems to have just generally followed the the Yamaha philosophy because also you know you bring up the the older times of Yamaha riders complaining about the power and acceleration out of the corners and still winning the titles but I'm more familiar with the times of the uh Rossi Vinales lineup uh, having the same type of complaints reoccurring every few races and winning enough races to keep the project looking respectable but not really coming anywhere near a title and part of that conservatism was that both of those guys got pretty pretty swift and pretty early contract renewals because there were certainly weekends where both of them were plenty good enough to continue uh but then you know the the one thing that they did that was bold if completely sensible they brought in Fabio Quartararo instead of one of their guys and immediately that paid off right away in spectacular fashion so what about the other team that uh, has had do- very dominant spells in MotoGP, but a bit of a barren patch, uh, Honda, and particularly Mark Marquez? How uh, All the questions were about Marquez's fitness and eyesight, and we'll discuss that as well. But uh, Simon, fundamentally, what does Marquez think about the 2022 Honda? So I think the, the biggest takeaway from the test is maybe not what Mark thinks of the 2022 Honda. It's what everyone else thinks of it. Um, Honda have been telling us for a while that they were going to come up with a new design philosophy, that they were going to kind of stop doing exactly what Mark Marquez wanted and try and build a bike that was actually rideable by human beings rather than just aliens. And it it genuinely sounds like they've done it. They've tilted the balance of the bike back. So it's now a little bit more focused in the rear than the front. It has given Paul Espargaro the rear grip that he so, so, so desperately wanted. And as a result, it, it... Sounds like they've got quite a good new bike. Um, Marquez doesn't understand it yet. Uh, We saw him crashing a lot, which is what Marquez does when he's trying to find the limit. And I think that the reason for that is that this is, you know, let's not forget, this is his first time riding the bike, whereas all the rest have already rode it at Jerez. So he's coming in to, to a bit of a more of an unknown with a riding style that has always worked in one way and that he's having to readapt to. But I don't doubt for a second that a writer like Mark Marquez won't figure out how to make it work sooner rather than later. And um, I think, yeah, it was a very, very good test across the board for Honda. I think Alberto Pud said afterwards it was his best test as, as a Honda team boss, which is pretty strong words. And yeah, also bodes well for, for them for the whole season and not just for Mark. Still still the fastest of the Honda riders, though, Mark, as, as, as much as he isn't quite fully up to the up to grips with this new bike, which he hasn't had a lot of time on. Uh, it's still, you know, it's still the quickest Honda over one lap, which tells you there's a bit of a margin there to find because, you know, Mark's just a bit quicker than everyone else, and that's fine to admit. And there's still a bit for him to extract to really press home that advantage. But also, you know, the other guys are happy, and that's and that's good. And they're not really crashing much. I think Alex went down once during a, like an early push lap. I think Taka might have gone down once. I don't think Paul went down at all. And Paul was quick and reasonably happy. And the LCR guys were, I think, reasonably quick and reasonably happy. So, you know, that's good. That's that's really, just really, really good for Honda. That's a very solid foundation to build on. And it, it makes your project more attractive for any other potential future candidates that you might want to invite. That, that's exactly what I was going to add, Val. Um you know, what a time for Honda to run a PR campaign about building a rider-friendly bike. We've just talked about two super candidates that they'd love to get on board at the time that they finally get a bike where where jumping on it doesn't seem like career suicide. You know, you, uh, Pudge saying it's the, the best test he can remember. It did need to be as well for Honda, didn't it? We talked last time about how it was stuck with three-year-old aero. It, its bike had been unmanageable for most people for for two years. Um, is it do you, do you see do you see major visual differences in what Honda turned up with this week? Yeah, you look at the new bike and you know it's a new bike whenever you're you're used to the last one. I think even the fact that I think for the first time ever the two factory riders had black and white uh, testing suits rather than the usual Honda orange testing suits. You know, they it's like they were trying to really push the the whole visual metaphor for it being a very different bike. Um, but it, the wings are different. There are multiple options. The new air intake is very different. The shape of the front fairing is different. Yeah, it, it you know they they were playing with exhausts that completely changed the the shape of the exhaust system. It 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 it's such a new looking bike that there has been a debate in the media center about whether it's uh, worthy to become a two one four 
rather than a two one three. This this is feeling like it's probably worth the episode's second Larry prediction. So uh, <laughs> where's Marquez going to finish in the championship, Simon? Top three with third adult. Oh, that's not a prediction. That's like a vague generalization. <laughs> Pick a number. <laughs> okay, he's going to be second. Val? Top 20. <laughs> first. Hey, I'll go first Do you know what well. though, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with both of you predicting him being first, because if he is first, it won't be a 2019 first where he wins by the most points ever. It, it'll be a, a first where Valencia decides it. Oh, it, it, seeing Marquez joining the narrative we've had for the last couple of years with those kids and with more bikes competitive is just a well it could be a brilliant thought or it could be one where marquez uses his more canny way of working that he's developed since that one championship he lost in a straight fight and seconds and thirds his way to quite a, quite a lot of useful results uh, I, I should caveat the the first thing with i think the chances of first for me the way i see it are less than 50%, but they're more than every other position. So <laughs> I, I don't, I don't even, like, if you can imagine a table of probabilities, first is for me most likely, but it's not a majority probability. So I, I, that's the sort of mathematical <laughs> model I'm operating under. I mean, knowing how often you pitch an article that requires a spreadsheet in the middle of it, I can imagine that you have this actually already kind of outlined for the entire field and can tell me the exact percentage chance in your mind of uh, Luca Marini being 18th in the championship. Yeah, I could do one, but we cannot publish it. <laughs> <laughs> we, uh, we hinted earlier in the episode that there was one team that hasn't got a lot to be pleased about from Sepang, so... Uh, who wants to address that one first? Uh, I'll, I'll jump in on the KTM thing because uh, Val sounded slightly more pessimistic about me than whenever, whenever we alluded to them earlier in the pod. Um, KTM are another manufacturer. Again, the, the buzzword of this test is potential. They're another one that rolled it out. It sounds like... It sounds like they've realised that the way to fix their bike is not to build new parts, which is what we said at the end of last season, right? That they were trying to engineer their way out of, of what wasn't an engineering problem. And they did a lot of research work in Sepang. They did a lot of sort of pure testing where they were trying things, but they never actually put together something that would be a 2022 race package. Um, but they... they they sounded a bit glum about the results because they, they weren't spectacular. Like, let's not beat about the bush. They did not finish well. But th there was kind of a quiet optimism that once all of the components are put into a bike, which we might not see until the, the final day in Mandalika at the next test, that things will hopefully you know, develop into something quite good. I think they probably struggled a little bit in, uh, in Sepang because... Um, Fabiano Sterlicini, their, their new head of engineering, who they stole from being Gigi Delinia's right-hand man, uh, he spent the test in COVID jail in a quarantine hotel in Kuala Lumpur and not at the track. And I think they probably, they felt a bit hamstrung by that, not having him there because it sounds like he is doing a good job. Uh, but on the flip side of that, it sounds like the, the adoption of, of Francesco Guidotti to the team is working well and that he's adding something that was maybe missing a little bit with, you know, nurturing the riders and calming them down and, and sort of helping them to understand the way that things are going with this new philosophy. So, yeah, I think they're the manufacturer who, for me, it doesn't look as bad as it is on paper. Here's here's why I'm pessimistic, and it's not because I, I think it's an, an incapable bike or an incapable team because it, we, we've had it proven to us decisively that neither of those are accurate but you know somebody has to be off that's you know that's just basically if, if everyone else is showing reasonably good pace then even if you have potential that's potential you still need to prove you can access because basically every other manufacturer has proven it during the test uh yeah they they don't have their their exact fixed 2022 package in place yet that sort of it sounds like it's been a fairly piecemeal test from from how brad binder described it but well firstly it just it takes me back to qatar 21 if i remember correctly none of them sounded particularly gloomy in the test and then the start of the season was just just a massive disaster and it was because it was basically because of the results of the test were replicated in, in the races 
Um, the like we know that like we've heard that the 2022 Ducati isn't quite ready yet, right? Isn't entirely the finished product, but it's still already like super fast. The 2022 Ducatis were what fourth and sixth or something like that on the on the times with Martin with Banyaya. They they both look pretty good with KTM. If they have their full package that they still then need to you know get fully up to grips with. I think it's a good bike in, in, in theory, and I think it's a bike that's going to produce good results, but there's not there's not a ton of time to get it into shape. Yeah, so I'm I just I've not seen enough enough proof. I've seen proof of something on the on the timing screen from every manufacturer, and the one manufacturer that doesn't seem to, doesn't seem to have brought something spectacular is Yamaha, which won the title last year. So it's more forgivable in that case. I'm not saying KTM is going to have a bad season, but I'm saying that there is there is reason for pessimism. And I think from the rhetoric that we heard, very cautious rhetoric, not critical rhetoric, but rhetoric that's a bit, it's very, very, very cautious. I think that rhetoric sort of confirms that there can be relative pessimism for where KTM is right now. Uh, KTM is the team with two rookies in the, in, in one of its lineups as well at Tech 3. So we should have a little bit of chat about how the rookies get got on. Raul Fernandez was the one with all the expectation. Val, this is uh, your turf particularly. You're always keen on how rookies are progressing. Who really stood out for you among that quintet at the test and who is very much still finding their feet? Yeah, I'm not, you know, not going not gonna to get original or creative here with the answer. The one who stood out the most is Marco Bezzecchi, who was the fastest and who finished, I think, was he top ten? Was he top eleven? Was he? He was. He was really high up on the on the bike that he has, and it's a good bike, obviously. But compared to where Bezeki was in Jerez, obviously, all the rookies benefited a bit from having the extra shakedown running. Some of them more than others. I'll get to that in a second. Bezeki obviously had all of it, but he's clearly just taken a, a major, major step. Which, if I'm the other manufacturers, I mean, that's just really irritating. You already have to worry about five factory spec Ducatis and one Enea Bastianini Ducati that might as well be factory spec because he's so fast on it. And now both of the rookies have already shown something that suggests they're going to be a, a big thorn in your side. So, uh, Digian Antonio didn't show that much this test, but he went down with a case of, what do they call it, gastroenteritis? Basically, tummy issues. During the shakedown, it forced him to miss two of the days, so he played catch-up during the test, ended up with a reasonably respectable time. Sounds like he's pretty happy. Apart from the, the gastroenteritis, that sounds unpleasant. Um, the KTM boys, hard to read into Remy Gardner because his wrist just didn't didn't let him push to the fullest, I think. It you know, he's it's it's currently not getting the rest that it needs to fully heal up because of the three days of shakedown and two days of the test. So I think his program in the shakedown and in the test finished early. So it's hard to say, but he, he seems generally in the ballpark of the pace. And Raul Fernandez seems like he's he's doing really well in the Tech 3 KTM, as you'd expect. He seems like he's going to be giving the, the works riders a bit of a headache very soon, which, which I think they expect. Uh... The last one, Darren Binder. I think what we what we learned from him is that you know the shakedown already proved he's going to be reasonably competitive. The just all the Yamahas looked a little bit off, so it's sort of hard to hard to really say what would be a success for Darren. Would it be the gap to Quartararo or the gap to the other Yamahas? And is the gap to Quartararo and the gap to the other Yamahas how those are going to relate to one another? I think is a big question. But he, you know he looked all right. But yeah, my, my rookie of the test is Bezeki. Sorry, that's really boring analysis because you can just say that from looking at the, the final timesheets and the best best lap times of everyone. But it's yeah, it's just it's just the case. Simon, you got to be more interesting than that. To be perfectly honest, no, not really. Um, I think Val's on the money there. Bez actually impressed me a little bit more than I was expecting because he, he wasn't setting the world quite on fire in Hareth, but... Yeah, he he just did a, a solid job. He is one of those writers. Don't get me wrong. He's one of those writers who we've looked at in Moto Two and thought, now nah, you're you're going to be better than your Moto Two results really show. Like this is this is the only guy really that's pushed Jorge Martín to a championship in in Grand Prix racing, in back in their Moto Three days. He really pushed him, and and you know there's obviously a ton of talent there, but he's not a small guy either. 
um, and a Ducati MotoGP bike is, is perfect for him. So um, not surprised by it. I think he'll go very well this year, but I think exactly like Val said again, um, Raul Fernandez will be a trouble, not if you're someone who's hoping to finish in the podium every week, but if you're Miguel Oliveira or Brad Bender. So it does feel like uh, we did have quite a few surprises across the course of this test in terms of who was fast, who wasn't. I think the the, the fact that Quartararo was that unhappy counts as a, a big surprise still. So there's quite a lot against expectations at a circuit they're pretty familiar with, even they haven't been there for a while. This weekend, they're off somewhere... It's a complete curveball for MotoGP to do their final, absolutely crucial three days of testing. So, Simon, what do, what do we know about Mandalika as a circuit? And is it going to be somewhere that they can do the final crucial work that they need? Or is it this going to be a little bit counterproductive for them? I, I think it's going to be counterproductive, but maybe not necessarily for the reasons that we think. Um, part of the problem will be that they're... they're it, it's not that they're going to take ages to learn the track. Um, there was a, a World Superbike Championship race here at the end of last season. There's a ton of footage. There's a ton of onboards. There's a ton of stuff for them to look at. And they've got four days to study it. So they'll all do that. And I think we'll we'll have a ballpark of what lap record pace is within half a day. But I also am pretty sure that the circuit hasn't been used since then. It's right on the edge of the, right on the, edge of the sea. It's going to be dusty. It's going to be dirty. It's blowing a bit of a gale tonight, having just arrived uh, from Sepang to, you know, I'm, I'm within sort of eyesight, eye line of the track. It's windy. Um, I, I think finding a very green track will be the, the biggest issue they face. Let's not forget, whenever everyone turned up for two days of Sepang, there had been like a super long spell in, in Sepang with no rain, which is unusual. And there'd been three days of shakedown testing. And multiple writers said that you know that that changes things because there's a, a black line the the width of a, a you know a lane on a motorway because everyone's been doing laps for so long and there's none of that here so I think yeah that's going to be an issue that's going to be one issue and then I think the other thing is that um, the results of this test will skew the start of the season because we come back here as our second race. And I think that's going to punish people like Aprilia and Suzuki that only have two bikes. Um, Ducati are going to come here strong because they've got so much data that they're going to be able to collect the next few days. And I think for for a manufacturer like them, you're coming here to refine something that's inherently quite good. They're going to be okay. The same probably applies for Honda um, and maybe Aprilia. So the people that might really struggle here are the Yamahas and the KTMs of the world. Uh, you know, the, this is not really maybe particularly meaningful in the long run, but I guess if, if it really is a, a gripless, windy challenge to start off, then I guess we'll see Mark lead a fair amount of the test because he again showed during Sepang when it was... it was So the, the final day, half of the final day was rained out, and I believe... Although we didn't have the, the tire data, I believe that towards the end of the test, once you know the, the rain was over, but the track was too damp to, damp to really do anything meaningful with, he, I think he went out of slicks and basically just rode around a lot quicker than everyone else, because that's you know that's just Mark. Uh, Simon's showing us the, uh, oh the forecast for Manzalika, and that looks that looks dodgy. Yeah. Uh, might as well pack and go home. Yeah. Which, you know, they will not do. 80%, 80% chance of rain every day Thanks. from now until the end of the test. That's, you know, and that's that's also part of my pessimism towards the who I was pessimistic about. You know, you already have five days of preseason testing, not counting the shakedown, three of those at a new track. If weather, you know, wrecks your wrecks your whole plan in Manzalika, or at least wrecks half of it, and you're, you're in real trouble coming to Qatar. This is not like the seasons when we have... 50 days of Qatar leading up to the first race in Qatar and then also the second race in Qatar like last year uh yeah it's I think manufacturers would be really wise to get a move on with their plans and for some of them it's not currently an option yeah just you know to throw in a bit of context there my first season was uh 16 in GP and we did two days at Valencia after the final race three days at Jerez then we stopped for winter then we did three days in Sepang, three days in Phillip Island, and three days in Qatar before the first race. And this year we've done two days in Hareth, two days at Sepang, and three days at a brand new circuit. 
it, it really could be a few races into the season before we actually have a clue what's going on this year, couldn't it? Yeah, I think so. I think I realistically think it'll be Europe before we have a feel for for how things actually are because it's it's so long since we've been to Argentina and you know Mark Marquez could win by 15 seconds in Texas which tells us nothing um so so yeah I, realistically <laughs> I think it's it's sort of Portimao Jerez that European that traditional start of the season before we we get a feel for it which is quite exciting. Or it might be that we have a Ducati, all, all Ducati top eight in Qatar because it's their circuit. And that turns out that has set the tone for this <laughs> season because that bike is just too damn good. And their strength in depth is now absolutely terrifying. I, I didn't watch MotoGP. Well, it was 500cc back then in the in the late 1990s. But it's it's such a blast to revisit the stats from those seasons and see like Honda taking 38 of the 42 available podiums. That must have been great to watch. It's great event television. I'm sure people are happily nostalgic for it. Like uh, in F1 terms, people will speak so fondly of those years when Schumacher and Ferrari won basically every race and you were desperate for any storyline to turn up ever or anything to give you any slight sense of the unknown going into a Grand Prix weekend. But that is not where we are now. I think, I think we're clashing with another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we... Do we have another podcast that talks about that a bit? I think we might do. Yeah. So finally, then um, let's just finish off with a quick, quick one-word summary. Who has the biggest jobs list for this wet, windy, dusty circuit this weekend for the final three days of testing? Who is going to be trying to crash through the most urgent work? Simon, Yamaha's electronics engineers. Val, KTM's everyone. Well, to find out how they get on with those missions, both those with big job lists and uh, and smaller ones, you can. Uh, Check all the latest news and opinion and analysis from the Mandalika test on the race. That's the dash race.com through the weekend. Simon is already ensconced in Indonesia. We'll be back for another podcast around a week from now, telling you about everything that went on in that test and what it means for the season ahead. Uh, our F1 podcast is recording incessantly at the moment with uh, team launches all over the place. There's Bring Back V10s out on Thursday as well. The IndyCar podcast is back in business with the season fast approaching there too. And Formula E's got another race in Mexico this weekend, so there'll be yet another podcast being recorded and issued on the race about that as well. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again soon.